touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey there, everyone, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm Jonathan Strickland. And I'm Lauren Volkbaum. And today we're taking uh, an interesting subject, one that uh, is near and dear to both our hearts. Yes, we are going to tackle in a two-parter the company Bungie, makers famously of Halo, among many other things. Yeah. Also, I have an announcement to make. This is, unfortunately, my final episode of, or, or episodes of Tech Stuff. After this, I'm going to... Uh, move on. I'm staying with How Stuff Works in order to pursue a bunch of other opportunities within the company. You'll still be able to hear me on our other show, Forward Thinking. So don't worry, Jonathan and I are not in any kind of ancient grudge match, which only one of us will survive. Probably. Joe is a great mediator. <laughs> and Joe is the other co-host on Forward Thinking. And uh, he is the one who is who is able to keep us in line. No, this is... Something that is very exciting for you, Lauren, because here, here's the thing. Folks, behind you're going to get a peek behind the curtain. We did this for uh, episode 600. We're going to give you another peek right now, which is that uh, working at How Stuff Works is amazing, but it's a lot of work, right? Oh, yeah. And I mean, there's a lot of stuff going on within the company. And so... So yes, but but we we really wanted to do this episode on Bungie as my kind of send off because we are both so fond of of the series and it's interesting bookends because uh, I think the very first episode you and I recorded together was about uh, uh, survival horror video games uh, Silent Hill right yeah. yeah we specifically did so that's right we're we're coming and going on or I'm coming and going on a on a video game kick and um, uh, and for those of you who are wondering about the fate of tech stuff uh, that will continue and I'll talk more about that at the end of the next episode let's let's move on to talking about Bungie this yeah. company that created a game that both of us have uh, grown to love and uh, I became the world's best sniper bullet magnet in that game so uh, so <laughs> that's where all of those bullets went yeah pretty much uh, spawn death okay. spawn oh. death it's, but uh, the the story of Bungie actually begins way back in 1991 yes that's when a fellow named Alex Seropian, who was attending the University of Chicago uh, as majoring in, in computer science and mathematics, was interested in creating a company of his very own. He was kind of always sort of a, a business minded in that respect. Now, back in 1990, so the year before this, this story really begins, he had created a clone of a popular uh, early computer game. Uh, Pong. And he, he created it for for the Apple Macintosh platform. Yeah, which I, I know for those of us who are more recent uh, computer owners probably don't realize the Mac platform for a very long time was catering to a much smaller audience. Oh, yes. And uh, almost no games were available. Yeah, very few and far between. So he created a Pong clone, which he creatively titled. Nop. Yep. Ganop. Ganop. Pong, Pong backwards. Um, he distributed the game for free, so this was not some money-making scheme. He was really kind of doing this as an exercise in his interest in, in gaming in, in general. Uh, and, and in Apple in particular, because he had always personally been, I think, a, an Apple and Mac user and was sort of lamenting the fact that more stuff wasn't available for, for computer users like him. Yep. So he ended up deciding, you know what? I think this is what I want to do. I think I want to go into... Uh, developing and publishing games. And so he got back to work 
uh, developing the first official bungee title. You could say Ganop is sort of a bungee title. They often lump it in. But in a way, that was sort of the predecessor it that a, led to the Right. Games. It was a precursor. Um, the, the first game that they would actually publish was Operation Desert Storm, which was a, a tank shooter, like a, like a top-down tank shooter. Yeah, it makes me think of the old Atari 2600, which had a combat with an exclamation point that involved uh, top-down tank uh, uh, battles where it was a two-player game and you would maneuver through a maze. Sort of similar to that, a little bit more sophisticated. The graphics were certainly more sophisticated than the old Atari 2600. Um, and it, uh, I remember specifically that it had copyright protection in the form of a manual where you would op- you'd start the game and the game would ask you questions that you had to answer by flipping through the manual and finding the right answer on the right page. Uh-huh. Like, like what, what word is on page Yeah, page four. 15 uh-huh. or whatever. Yeah, those were the days, man. <laughs> When your copyright protection involved a hard copy of the the documentation that came with the game. Because back then, most of us didn't have access to things like scanners. So it was a viable means of copy protection. And not so much these days. Uh, you would control this, this tank and you maneuver through these maze-like areas, fight other tanks, mortars, complete specific tasks, whatever that happened to be for that level. And you could pick up little power-ups. Um, you had, you know, health as well as fuel that you had to keep an eye on or else you would lose that, that game. You would lose a life. Um, and it was pretty primitive, but then Seropian was a, a, a sole designer working on a game. This was back in the day when people still occasionally did that. We were getting into, by the 90s, into the era of games where you would have larger teams working on a title increasingly large teams yes, yes. But, but uh but but it wasn't unheard of at the time for for especially a relatively simple game like this with a relatively small release to have a single dev yeah yeah so this was a uh, i think he pretty much got in at at the very tail end of that era like if it had been much later it would have not been a very viable um, business opportunity. Well, <laughs> well, sure. I mean, also within the next few years, um, blockbusters like Doom would come out for for PC and kind of blow the entire market uh, wide open. Wide open. Yeah. But but that that is that is up and coming. So in 1992, he would get together with a former classmate, Jason Jones, yep. who had been working already. I think I think unto himself on a game that he called Minotaur. Yep. The full title is Minotaur, the Labyrinth of Crete. Yes, by the time it published, right, they they got together to, to finish up the game and, and published it under Bungie. Yeah. So this at this point, uh, Seropian and Jones had met in an artificial intelligence class. And so they both had this interest in games. And when Jones found out about Seropian's plans and Seropian found out about Jones's work on this game, they thought, well, this partnership would make sense. We'd have a lot more chance of success working together. And uh, the game itself was a multiplayer game, which was pretty innovative at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, it was, again, for the Mac. And it would uh, uh, allow up to seven people to play on a local area network or LAN. And uh, uh, although I did read one thing where it said a, a player and up to seven others. So whether it was seven or eight, I don't know. I I wasn't playing Mac games at this time, so I have no personal expertise with this particular title. I always assume that things go in even numbers, uh, yeah. multiples of four specifically. So eight is but, probably more likely. Uh, yeah, but, but that's based on on consoles, not. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> so. That's true. Uh, same here, though, because seven just seems like a weird number. But it was a it was oh, a, it'd be appropriate for Bungie. I guess so. 
I guess so. That it does feature pretty they, heavily. Uh huh. Anyway, sorry. They they have the entire seventh column thing. But yeah. At any rate. So, yes. so the game is a dungeon crawler style, right? So you have a little character and you're moving through a dungeon maze. The whole purpose of the game, at least the multiplayer version, is to kill all the other players. Um, in fact, they came up with the the slogan: "Kill your enemies, kill your friends' enemies, kill your friends." <laughs> and uh, that that slogan would show up in other future Bungie titles, usually uh-huh. on game types, yeah, like like a deathmatch or something, and that would be the little descriptor. Uh, so this was a pretty simple game, although the networking made it again pretty innovative. Uh, interesting title. It only sold around a thousand copies, so not a huge success by any stretch of the imagination, but it convinced both Jones and Seropian that this was a good idea to have this company, Bungie, and to work together to create games. Uh, so Jones is often credited as co-founder of Bungie. So even though Seropian was really determined to create this company before Jones got involved, it wasn't until Jones had, had started collaborating that it really became a thing. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, their original headquarters was an apartment on the south side of Chicago. Uh, yep, just an apartment. Yeah. Just. Apparently there was, according to a documentary on Bungie's 20th anniversary, a crack house behind said apartment. Oh, how so, quaint. Uh, they actually had a lot to say about that. If you haven't seen the 20th anniversary documentary, it's a fun, uh, video. It's an hour long. It's mm-hmm. up on YouTube, so you can watch it. And th- those guys have a really great sense of humor, and yeah. so it's really fun to, to kind of get some of the behind the scenes. Yeah, um, there are a lot snark. of a lot of bleeps and bloops. Yeah. that are <laughs> they, they are very they're a colorful group. But uh, yeah, they had like a room and a half, according to one of the developers. That's about how much space they had. And uh, and before too long, uh, Jones and Seropian would end up hiring on more people to kind of join the group and start working together to make more complex games. Uh, like 1993's entry, Pathways into Darkness. Yeah. Yeah, this one was interesting. It's a first-person shooter game, but it also incorporates action-adventure-type gameplay and role-playing game-type gameplay all together. So it wasn't as cut-and-dry as a first-person shooter like Wolfenstein 3D or Doom, right? Mm-hmm. It had other elements. There were some puzzle-solving elements. You had some stats that could increase over time as you played. And it was uh, pretty cool. The Jones himself had gotten the idea of really developing a more complex version of the first-person shooter when he looked at Wolfenstein 3D. Uh, which was not, in 1993, out for the Macintosh platform. Eventually, of course, it would be released for, like, everything. Yeah. Um, but it wouldn't hit Mac until the next year, 1994. So so when he, when he saw that, he was like, there's an opportunity for this kind of game. Why isn't it on a Mac? Let's exactly. make one. Yeah. Let's make it. And what was fantastic, I mean, I played Wolfenstein back in oh, yeah. probably 92. Mm-hmm. So I could totally see where he got the, like, like looking at the gameplay of Pathways, I see where the inspiration came in. But also, this would be when you'd start to see uh, Bungie coming up with some really incredible storylines that get oh, really yeah. complex. And, and some some tropes that you can still see in their games today, which is so fascinating. Yeah. Me. I mean, it's it, it's a shooter. And most of us, when we play a shooter, we're used to a pretty bare bones storyline. Oh, right? sure. Well, I mean, especially I think in these days with stuff like like Doom and Wolfenstein 3D yeah. um, that was very run and gun. Yeah. And I mean, and, and the objective was kill the bad guys. Right. Who are the bad guys? Everyone you meet. Right. And then get to the exit at the end of the level. It's usually really a linear 
mm-hmm. kind of level. I mean, you might have twists and turns, but really there's only one way to get from point A to point B mm-hmm. and kill everything that happens to be in between point A and point B. That's about it. But this was a game where they wanted to add in a really rich mythology. They created this science fiction alien world type thing. Uh, there was an alien race called the Jaro, which that's important because they'll come back. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> and uh, the, the whole thing takes place in a, uh, a, a pyramid in the Yucatan Peninsula. And you actually have to go into the pyramid and go underneath. There's uh, in the mythology a big evil alien monster that that rests Cthulhu-like underneath the pyramid. And you come up with this brilliant plan based upon these these kindly aliens called the Jaro um, to destroy said monstrous entity. Uh, or at least slow it down. Yeah. By with, by detonating a nuclear weapon beneath yes. the pyramid. <laughs> you know, it's a measured like, response. Yeah, well, sure. I mean, also, I guess, you know, especially in the early 90s, if you're the president and you get a phone call from aliens, then a completely reasonable response is to go, yes, I will blow up this ancient artifact. Yes, this is this was clearly be the administration before the one that we saw on Independence Day, where they tried to take a much more measured approach. Uh Um, Yeah, no, this was this was uh, one of those things that as I read about it, it really tickled me. I mean, I could definitely see where the seeds were planted for future bungee titles, but it just made me think of uh, 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 the the the. I could just imagine the exchange where the aliens say, "Yeah, do you have any huge weapons that you can use?" Like, "Yeah, we've got these these nuclear bombs." Like, "All right, you should totally go into the pyramid and use one of those." And the president says, "Oh, and that'll kill it." And they're like, "Oh no, that won't kill it. It'll just slow it down long <laughs> enough for us to get there and handle it from there." <laughs> At any rate, you play as a a special forces agent who is part of a team. And at the very beginning of the game, you're separated from your team and you lose all your equipment. So it's basic kind of first person shooter where you start off with some of the lower power pieces of equipment. Basically nothing. And you have to kind of run through the pyramid, uh, picking up equipment and solving puzzles and yep. killing stuff or, you know, at least avoiding being killed as right. best as possible. Right. And you have a, a time limit. So that's interesting, too. Mm-hmm. You had to be able to set off the bomb and escape either by... Uh, getting out of the pyramid and calling for uh, pickup, or if you did not have a radio beacon, because that was one of the things you had to find, running far enough to get outside the blast radius of a nuclear bomb. Uh, and if you did those things, you got the successful ending of the game. So the game could end in various ways, depending upon your choices, which was pretty cool. Uh, yeah, yeah. And I also found it really interesting. One of the, the game elements was that you could find it, this this yellow crystal that would let you converse with dead people. Yeah. Um. <laughs> and that, that that's where all the story elements came oh, out. Oh, right, right, right. Yeah. I, I mean, which I, I'm sorry, just saying that sentence out loud always makes me giggle just a little yeah. bit. Um, well, I mean, but... of course you have to have the yellow crystal to talk to dead people. <laughs> this isn't a crazy game. Um, but, but yeah, yeah, it was a lot of backstory about what was going on and would give you a lot of clues for what you, where you should go and what you should do next. Right. And, and that as a story element is so rampant throughout not only most of Bungie's video games, but a lot of other video games in the industry after this. So yeah, yeah. I just think that it's 
kind of terrific to have seen this in 1993. Exactly. Yeah. This idea of of incorporating your story elements into the game itself where the player has to come into contact with it and activate with an item. It. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Whether now in this case, it is this yellow crystal that lets you talk to dead people. <laughs> Uh, but in other games, it'll be like terminals, right? I'm so gonna get over that. Idea. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, right, right. Uh, terminals or, or cassette tapes or yeah. whatever it is. Right, right. right. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and you would run into all these other like adventurer types who had died in pursuit yeah. of this pyramid. Yeah, and a few, right, because there had been like a Nazi expedition there yeah. and some Cuban treasure hunters, I yeah. think. Yeah. yeah, so it was all these like like different eras of people who had one, at- one time or another had attempted to infiltrate the pyramid and had not been terribly successful. But you get to hear about it because you have the yellow crystal. They failed successfully. That's true. So the game ended up being a big success for Bungie. Keep in mind, a big success on the Mac platform was smaller than what you would find for the PC platform. Oh, yeah. And we'll talk a little bit about that in another couple of years down our timeline. Yeah. But it meant that the company was able to actually start really ramping up and going into their next project, which in 1994 was one of the the if it hadn't been for the Halo series, I think this would be the big one that people would remember. And a lot of Mac gamers are very fond of this particular series. Oh, sure. I, I think the only reason that it's not more widely widely remembered is just the sheer disparity of Mac to PC PC users, especially in, in the mid-90s here. But yes, Marathon yeah. is the name of this game. And it was set in the same universe as Pathways, actually. Yeah, it was not a sequel to Pathways. Uh, uh, Pathways took place in what was then modern day uh uh, Earth, which mm-hmm. today would be we like, well, that's mid nineties Earth, contemporary Earth. It's yes, a, it's a period piece now, but at the time it was supposed to be taking place during the modern day. Marathon was set in the future, and uh, it was originally called Marathon Zero as a working title, and it was shown at the San Francisco MacWorld Expo, just a demo, like a you know kind of a sizzle reel type thing, mm-hmm. in January of nineteen ninety four. Yeah. And it featured a, a sort of a faster gameplay than Pathways, also had some new features that have become standard in first-person shooter games, like dual-wielding weapons. That was one of the things they showed off, which not very many first-person shooters had really done up to mm-hmm. that point. Um, and also alternate modes of fire for your gun. So if you had a gun that had burst mode versus single fire or, you know, grenade launcher or whatever, it had that kind of uh, gameplay as well. Now, according to Jones... It was kind of met with a tepid response. So the development team said, whoa, we have a problem here, a potential problem. I mean, if the if people think that this is just yet another first person shooter clone, like, oh, well, you guys are trying to do the same thing that Wolfenstein and Doom are doing, Mm -hmm. then we've got a problem. So uh, they decided to go back to the drawing board and really revisit Marathon and and pour some new energy into it. Uh yeah, they hired one Ryan Martell to uh to create a new rendering engine for them. Yeah. And he also created a map editor tool which again becomes kind of a hallmark of Bungie products where they create tools that allow players to do their own sort of editing and make their own kind of maps. Um, you'll you'll find that again and again in various Bungie titles, not all of them, but enough of them where you see that they really understood that player communities could be really creative and become uh, uh, evangelists for your product. Uh-huh. So if you support that, 
they tell everybody else, hey, this game is awesome, and I made this awesome map, but for you to be able to play my awesome map, you need to go out you and get a to copy go, of the game. Right, right. Um, although this feature would not be released to the players as of Marathon, I think it wouldn't be until Marathon 3 that that would happen, but we are getting ahead of ourselves. Yeah. Um, uh, they, they would also hire um, Greg Kirkpatrick to help them develop the, the mythology of this game world. Yeah. Which, again, very complex. Like Pathways was a much more complicated world than what you would typically see in a first-person shooter. They were further enriching this mythology that had been created during the Pathways experience. Later in 1994, Bungie also brought on a programmer named Alan Roy, or Elaine Roy, who began to build in multiplayer functions to the game, which originally was not going to be one of the game features. But then they thought, well, we could support some you know, local area network play. Yeah. And uh, and again, that ended up being a huge deal to Marathon success. Uh, and again, something that Bungie would be very interested in continuing in further titles. Uh, yeah. So j- just a few months later, in July of 1994, they debuted this uh, another demo of yeah. the game, which they had officially decided to call Marathon yep. at the Boston Macworld Expo. And, uh, and it received a pretty huge response. Yeah. Bungie ended up even deciding to take pre-orders on the game, uh, originally promising, oh, this this thing is ready to go into boxes in two weeks. We'll have this shipping out in two weeks. Uh, it actually would not ship until December. So from July to December, they realized there was still a lot more work to be done on the game. Uh-huh. Uh, Jones says that the reason that this game was so late was partially because the team had become obsessed with playing it in multiplayer. And so instead of actually working on the game... And they tended to just... Be fragging each other. Yeah. Yeah. I could see that happening. I've been... I've I have joined groups where we were having lots of plans for the day and it all ended up being, you know, just a massive land party. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was right around this time in the early 90s. So, yeah, it was someone on the team who said, you know, the single player campaign probably doesn't have the full attention that it needs for it to be a satisfying experience for a player. So perhaps some of us should stop, you know, killing each other and develop it some more. And so they uh, they did that they started going into full-on crunch time working on the game oh yeah because i mean but by the time they realized all of this they really would have had to have shipped it like two weeks previous to get it out by christmas which is always the the yeah game developers goal right yeah you you don't want to miss that holiday season because that's going to be your most lucrative time so they finally concluded the development on december 14th 1994 and started shipping it to customers. Now, they had more than 25,000 pre-orders Oof. by that time. So their shipping partners, because Bungie was such a small company at the time, they were working with other small companies. Their shipping partners, who were actually the ones putting the products together and, and producing the discs and shipping them out, they couldn't meet that capacity in a really short time. So even Bungie so, employees were Yeah, yeah, their developers it. were out there, like, stuffing boxes yeah. and shrink wrapping. It would not be the fir- the last time, rather, that Bungie employees would have to start getting their hands dirty, actually po- uh, boxing orders and getting <laughs> them out the door. So when they showed up to the San Francisco Macworld Expo in 1995, after the game had already gone gold and started shipping, they brought copies of the game with them. And they sold out of all of them. Wow. So it had gone from a lackluster response a year previous to a sellout game. Uh, and it was, 
you know, kind of a, a pretty cool game. It had six chapters and 27 levels within the game. Also something that you would see in later Bungie games. Mm-hmm. This kind of multi-chapter, multi-level approach. Um, and had a lot of basic missions like you'd have to, you know, first person shooter. So shooting enemies would be a big one. Mm-hmm. Rescuing people who are about to be shot by enemies would be another one. Uh-huh. Uh, disarming explosives. Yeah. So that the enemies couldn't blow up the people who they had previously been shooting at. Uh, you, you get a theme here. Uh, definitely had a science fiction theme again, cause it was in that pathways universe. You play as a security officer who is assigned to a space station that is called Marathon. Uh, it also introduced some some themes that would be showing up in later Bungie games, like artificial intelligence. Uh, the station had a, an AI called Durandal that had gone sort of, um, well, not necessarily bonkers, but it becomes self-aware and self-determining. Uh, and is definitely preventing you from reaching your goal. Yeah. He's, it's, it's an antagonist. So, sometimes you work against each other. Sometimes you work with each other. This is also something you see in a lot of Bungie games where uh-huh. you have to make these weird allegiances that... Later on, you turn on each other for some reason. But uh, the idea of an AI that gains self-awareness or becomes a problem uh, will pop up in later Bungie titles, even after Bungie was done working on those titles. Um, so that was kind of cool. And you would end up playing the same character, this nameless security officer, for two more game titles in the Marathon series. Um, you never were given a name. Very mysterious kind of character. Another Thing that's similar to mm-hmm. uh, the Halo series, which we'll talk about in our second episode. But at any rate, the storyline, very complex. Uh, it involved not just the rampant AI Durandal that was kind of taking totalitarian control of the space station, but also an alien invasion force. And uh, so you're, you're dealing with lots of stuff all at once. And at the end of the game, Durandal is able to transfer its intelligence from the space station to the alien spacecraft that had been uh, the one that was invading. And uh, then, you know, goes and says, I'm going to go see what, what the universe has to hold. See ya, and zooms off. And that was the end of the game. Now, the big success here wasn't just the first play- person game, which a lot of people love, but also the multiplayer. People really love the multiplayer element. Uh, yeah, game. you could you could land up to eight people. Uh, I believe at once so. Into yeah, the game, I think. Yeah, and so it was one of those things where uh, people really latched onto that, and it became a huge success for Bungie, which prompted them to make some sequels. Now, this was something that that Jason Jones originally was not really into. He wasn't big on let's make sequels for our games. He he liked the idea of developing new uh, new IP each time. Mm-hmm. But when the the demand was there and the opportunity was there to expand upon the story and mythology they created, uh, you know, it's kind of hard to say. Well, let's not do that. This is what people want. And oh, we sure, could- sure. And and also, I mean, I think that I think that it wound up. I think what is so special about Bungie, actually, if you'll allow me to pontificate just a wee bit, is that um they. They don't do exactly the same thing twice. Yeah. They're never working with an exactly the same story, um, you know, or, or it's a different segment of the story or they're approaching it from a different angle. And and the game elements that they introduce are interesting enough that you feel comfortable, but 
you have a huge drive to, to keep playing around in this universe. And I feel like they enjoy playing around in their own universes still. So, yeah. Um, so, so yeah. So two sequels, uh, Marathon 2 was called, uh, Durandal. Yep. And, it, and it came out in 1995. Yeah. So just a year later. Yeah. It was one of those things where they just immediately started developing as soon as, as soon as it was clear that Marathon was going to be a big hit. Uh, and this one, ends up taking place in the game world 17 years after the ending of the first game. And you wake up and you're on that alien ship. You're still that security officer. You're on the alien ship. Turns out Durandal really had need of you. So he took you. Uh, apparently against your will. I have not played the marathon game. So if I get any of this incredibly wrong, feel free to write in and explain to me how I have misrepresented the plot. But basically Durandal has this plan uh, to use you and some of the other people who are aboard the the Marathon space station uh, as frontline soldiers in a war against the aliens that had been such a big problem in the first game. Uh-huh. And so uh, it's, again, another first person shooter where you're you're continually learning more through various computer terminals, just like in the first game. And you're trying to complete various missions. Uh, very similar gameplay to the first one. They did add in some special stuff for the sequel that had not been in the first game including liquid effects. So uh, yeah, these are things where where you as the player could jump into various pools of stuff. Yeah. And it would have a different effect. Uh it would it would slow down your movement yeah. or uh or or give you weapons effects. Right. Yeah, like for example, some weapons like a fire-based weapon wouldn't fire in water. Uh also if the if the pool were deep enough, you would actually sink into it so that, you know, you'd start to drown if you didn't if you didn't uh, uh surface fast enough. Uh which in the first marathon game, all the surfaces were solid surfaces. Mm-hmm. And really, you know, this, this kind of liquid sort of thing that was fairly new for the time of marathon and marathon two. Um, you know, liquid effects are not easy to pull off, especially not easy to pull off convincingly. Oh, sure. Especially not in this era of rendering. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So, you know, running into a lava pit, usually you would just have a, a game where if you touched something, you died as opposed to, you get engulfed in something and you start taking damage and you have an opportunity to get out before you die. Um, but yeah, that was one of those interesting little elements they added in. Multiplayer got some new features, uh, including some game types that became really popular in later games across the genre of first person shooters. Uh, yeah, like a, like a kill the dude who's holding the ball yeah. kind of game. Yeah. In, uh, in Halo, that would be a skull. Uh, there are other games where, you know, there's some object that represents I am the player that everybody needs to kill now. <laughs> and that's essentially that. They also had like a King of the Hill style game, which is essentially the same style game you'll find in first person shooters across the board now, which is a, a zone on a map is designated as the hill and you have to take it and hold it for as long as you possibly can. And whoever holds it for a given number of seconds within a round wins. It's a um, really great excuse to shoot a lot. I actually really like that game type because it's very forgiving for people who are not good at first person shooters like me. It involves very little strategies. Yeah, so, it's um, mostly this is where you need to be right now. <laughs> that's all that's all that's important. And most of the time, if you just lag behind a little bit, the grenades clear out everybody else and then you come in. And I've noticed generally that, you know, if, if you're if you're struggling, you know, really winning the game, you can at the very least frustrate the heck out of your friends. That's right. You can play the part of spoiler if you can't if you can't. Actually <laughs> actually be a good winner. Uh, yeah, I, I love this game type. Uh, this sequel was then followed up. Bungie, you know, Bungie was such a small team, comparatively speaking, 
that they couldn't work on multiple projects simultaneously at this point. Mm -hmm. So they really would focus on one title and get it out the door, and then they would start the next title. So they had just done Marathon, and then they did Marathon 2. So the next project they decided to do was... Marathon 3, Infinity, (laughs) and that would come out just another single year in 1996 after Marathon 2, Durandal. Yeah. And so th- this would be the final game in the Marathon series. It's Although also- it's not quite the last that we'd hear <laughs> of some of these elements. That's yeah. true. It's also the trippiest game that they that they created in the Marathon series because it wasn't straightforward at uh, all. Well, according, according to Kirkpatrick, it was purposefully not straightforward, right? Yeah, it was meant to challenge the player to bring his or her own interpretation to the game to decide what actually is going on. So within the context of the game, it appears that you are able to travel to different alternate timelines with the goal of stopping a a catastrophe from happening. The catastrophe happens at the beginning of the game, and then you have this this ability to potentially uh, bypass that, to stop it from happening, going through either alternate timelines or perhaps you're just exploring your own consciousness. Uh, Yeah, like you do. Or just alternate realities in general, not just timelines. It's never really fully explained. Uh, you would, again, get bits and pieces of information from computer terminals. So you could play this game straight through as a standard first-person shooter, not interested at all in the story, and still have a satisfactory experience just mm-hmm. based on the gameplay. Uh, sure, but if you jump around to these different timelines or realities or whatever it is, you can you can fight all kinds of different enemies and get all kinds of different story elements. Yeah, and, and, it, and it's a more, you know, a richer experience, mm-hmm. I would say. So just like in uh, for those of you who have played the Halo games, you know, you can you can zoom through those games and not pay attention to the cutscenes or anything. Mm-hmm. But if you do really pay attention to the details, you and start seeing try to pick up all of the backstory elements. It's crazy complicated. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. At any rate, um, you would face different enemies in different timelines. Sometimes you would face uh, and it, sometimes an enemy in one timeline would be an ally in another timeline. Uh-huh. So it would be one of those things where you might be used to blowing these alien guys away repeatedly. And then you go to an alternate timeline. Suddenly you're working with the aliens and you're shooting humans. And um, you would have to just adjust to whatever the timeline demanded of you. And um, it, it shipped also with these map making tools we had talked about and asset editors. They were called Forge and Anvil. Right. And anyone who is familiar with the with the latter Halo series will very much recognize those elements. So this this gave you the chance to make your own multiplayer maps Uh, and and tweak weapons and and all kinds of other stuff like that. Yeah. So if you wanted to have a game where everyone had super overpowered weapons that are one shot kills uh, and and are, you know, invisible and running around a, a really complex map. You could, in theory, do that. Yeah, yeah. You can set your own physics and and physical structures within within these maps. And I, it kills me that this was in 1996. Yeah, uh, they did release a couple of very tiny titles. They're not even really included in uh, Bungie's full history. If you look on their website, but one of them was called Abuse. Uh, this was these were games that they they kind of helped, worked with other people to help publish them. Uh, abuse was a game where you played as a prisoner trying to escape a penitentiary while fellow prisoners are all being turned into monsters, thus making prison even worse than it normally would be. And then the other one was called Weekend Warrior, uh, and I've never seen this game. It was developed by Pangea Software, 
and then completed and published by Bungie. And the description I read said it was a game show world where you win prizes by solving puzzles, disarming traps, and beating the crap out of competing contestants. So it made me think of a slightly more sophisticated version of Smash TV. I think that was the name of it. It was an arcade game that... Oh, um, yeah, yeah. Um, absolutely re- big money, big prizes. I love it. It just makes me think of that. Um, so the company was growing quite large at this point. Uh, yeah, although I, I did want to put in all these games, I believe, were, uh, were for, were for Macintosh, right? Yes. Yeah. They were just developing for the Mac. Some of the games, like Marathon 2, eventually got ported over to the uh, PC. Right. They would get popular enough that they would make ports. But. Yeah, but they weren't they weren't being developed for any other platform other than the Macintosh. Uh you know, if if it had enough of an interest, they would attempt to port it to to Windows-based PCs. Mm-hmm. But it was that was not their intended Concern. audience. Sure. Yeah. So, in in 97, they officially grow, right? Uh yeah, they would found a satellite studio out in California called Bungie West which would begin to work on a game called Oni, which was a, a third-person shooter-adventure kind of game that, that was highly inspired by a lot of, of, of anime, like a, like Ghost in the Shell. Yeah. If you ever look at this game, you can tell where they, they pulled their inspiration from. Uh, that was a troubled developmental process for that game. We'll, we'll cover oh, that. Oh, yeah, up. yeah. Um, right, we'll cover it later, but uh, suffice it to say that I think that Bungie and Bungie West didn't generally agree all the time yeah. on stuff. Yeah, there were some issues um, between the two teams and, and even within just the Bungie West team itself. Sure. Uh, also within Bungie itself. They, these are these were a lot of creative young uh, uh, individuals who mo- more often than not really worked well together as a team but sometimes you know if the if the elements weren't just right uh-huh. things could take longer than they needed to uh, and especially as the company was going through these growth spurts it's easy to get a little bit off track um also in 1997 they would release myth the fallen lords one of their uh one of the games that 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 strategy players on the mac absolutely loved uh it was a, a fantasy real-time tactics game. Some people call it like a real-time strategy game, but it didn't have the micromanaging that you would have in a typical RTS game. Like you didn't have to build a a um, barracks that would produce units. In fact, it was it was a really unforgiving game in the sense that when the level started, you would have a certain number of units at your disposal, and that's it. They could not replenish themselves if you lost them they were gone Uh casualties were a huge deal and not only that but if you weren't careful with the way you played your characters your own guys could end up destroying half your units in friendly (laughs) fire like don't put your archers behind your knights is what i'm saying so yeah it was a dark fantasy world also had a lot of gore to it although uh, when I say gore, you're talking about these tiny little cartoonish figures and blood pixels and yeah, yeah. it would just be that blood would splatter the whole board. But it, <laughs> but it wasn't it wasn't realistic in a sense. Like uh, they were all very cartoon. Oh sure, sure. Although at, at the time, certainly, I think a lot of people were very up in arms about even cartoonish video game gore. Yeah, uh, up in arms being a slightly unfortunate pun. There, I think. <laughs> um, but <laughs> in, in in development, in fact, the, the game had been called the Giant Bloody War Game. Yeah. I think. Yeah, that was um that was pretty telling. Originally this was going to be a little, you know, kind of side title that they were going to publish while they also tried to create a new first person shooter game. 
But then Quake came out, and when uh, Jason Jones saw Quake, he felt that any game Bungie would make at the time would be compared unfavorably to Quake. So instead, they decided to uh, elevate Myth to being their primary focus rather than the secondary title, and they really went in on that. Uh, and it turned out to be a good a good project because once it came out, people really responded positively to mm-hmm. it. Uh, some critics said that there were some elements to the game that made it a little more difficult than it necessarily had to be. Uh, like your your field of view was very limited. You couldn't zoom out very far. So you, you had a little radar that would kind of show you where enemy uni- units were in comparison to your units. Mm-hmm. But you couldn't really see them. And it made it hard to plan out your strategy because, you know, you might have someone flanking you and you can't you just can't physically see that far off the map. Um, and so there was that. There were some other uh, issues with the user interface. So Bungie ended up releasing a patch and upgraded the game to Myth 1.1. And that patch ended up adding in more uh, a more streamlined user interface, uh, a zoomable field of view, that kind of thing. And that made it a. Uh, um, it addressed a lot of the criticisms that they got early on. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was popular enough that by 1998, they would release a se- sequel called Myth 2 Soul Blighter. Yeah. Uh, this, um, this game's famous for something. Oh, yeah. It almost shipped with like the worst bug in the history of all video games ever. Uh, yeah. <laughs> in which by, by trying to uninstall the game, you could delete your entire hard drive. Yeah. Yeah, you could literally destroy your hard drive. Like, well, not literally, I guess. You could, you I mean, could you know, destroy all the explode, data on but your yeah, hard drive. Yeah, no, I mean, you would, you would wipe it absolutely clean. And this was um, discovered like, by. Like, unformat it. Uh, uh, an, an unfortunate marketer. Uh, yeah, I, I heard that, I heard that it was a, a lady, um, mm-hmm. um, overseas actually who, who had been doing a test on it and, and uninstalled as many people do right. by, by just going to the, going to the root files. Right. And, Bye bye computer. Yeah, and then oops, her her computer was no more. Yeah, uh, there were so. <laughs> there was some great commentary about this particular uh this particular bug uh by folks like um the Penny Arcade guys mm-hmm. who were like, you don't like our game? Screw you! We're taking all of your data. Uh, but uh, it was not intentional. Uh, no. Um, and they did catch it before it shipped. It had unfortunately already been printed and boxed, so this was another time at which Bungie employees, like the developers, had to go out into warehouses and unshrink wrap games and switch out the discs. Yeah, they physically had to remove uh, bad discs and put in good discs and then package it all back up again. Uh, the estimates I've heard for this mistake were like, what was the cost? A range right around a million dollars. Uh, A.K.A. about what the game made. Which was uh, a really severe blow to Bungie. Bungie was was kind of operating like right in the margins uh-huh. uh, this whole time. Like they were they were seeing success, but they were also trying to ramp up. And yeah, yeah. And so making basically nothing on a game because of this mistake was, was yeah, it was huge, huge. And so that would end up affecting their decisions in the very near future. Um, you may have also heard about Myth Three, but that game did not come out from Bungie. Uh, because of something that happened in the year 2000. But here's the problem. Uh, my notes stopped for part one in 1999, so I can't even talk about 2000 yet. We're going to have to wait for a whole new episode yeah. here to find out what happened. Contractually speaking, we're not allowed to say anything else. Right. So for those of you who have no awareness of what happened in the past, tune in next time 
so that you can find out the, the exciting conclusion to the bungee story. In the meantime, if you guys have any suggestions for future uh, episode ideas for Tech Stuff, please let us know. Send an email to techstuff at howstuffworks.com or drop a line at uh, Twitter, at Facebook, at Tumblr. HSW is the handle. And we'll talk to you again really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 